This week, governors in several states began weighing their options on reopening businesses, trying to balance the needs of the economy with public health. I'm David Sampson of the American Cancer Society, and in this edition, I talked to Dr. Len Lichtenfeld, Deputy Chief Medical Officer, about whether we're really ready to open up, and if we're not, how will we know when we are? We also talk about the issue of race in COVID-19 and how racial injustice has led to our current state of affairs. And finally, we look at the pandemic's impact on medical information sharing, scientific meetings, and beyond. Len, it's been an incredible couple of weeks. How are you holding up so far? I'm doing okay. How about yourself? Good. Uh, you know, it's, it's been a challenge for everybody, staying at home. Uh, people are really you know, feeling, chomping at the bit. I, I noticed this morning, actually, I walked out, seemed to be more cars, more people. I'm in Hollywood, I'm in California. And people have been taking it seriously here, but I see some signs of change. Um, and you and I have both seen the headlines. Uh, people are really itching to get out. I've been seeing it. The headline. I've been seeing the headlines, and I've certainly seen what you've noticed as well. In fact, I'll share with you that my wife went out today to go to the grocery store. Uh, we're up in North Georgia, and she came back and she specifically commented that she saw a lot more cars on the road today. And maybe that has something to do with uh, our governor's recent announcement that he's going to start opening this state up uh, in a variety of ways over the next uh, week or so, and possibly lifting the stay-at-home order at the end of the month. Mm -hmm. You and I did a short video on, on Twitter on the ACS news feed talking about this for a couple of minutes and you had some concerns particularly for cancer patients about opening up now. I have some real concerns. First off, let's understand something very clearly. Cancer patients are exceptionally vulnerable to the coronavirus and COVID-19. They have a higher mortality rate, uh, but their immune suppression from their treatment, their disease, whatever, puts them at higher risk. So I am very concerned about what's going to happen with cancer patients. But the other question that governors have now raised is about opening up different states and different parts of the country. And how do you make that decision? Somebody reached out to me on Twitter today and said, so how do you know when it is safe to go outside? A great question. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's something that more of us are going to be asking. But the real question today, what has me concerned, is this the time? And to some degree, that's local, but there's data out there that suggests that maybe where I live, this isn't the right time to start telling people to go out and about. I mean, there aren't very many places in the U.S. where rates have done anything but plateau, maybe dropping off in a few places. You've been watching these maps closely, so, so you know that. So the question of how do we know, and, and I have to agree with you, it, it, it seems premature, although we we everybody really is chomping at the bit to get out there. How do you know? Well, David, there are a couple of sources of information that I rely on that I look at that give me an idea of where we are. So one of them is a, a data source a lot of people talk about. It's IHME, which is a, a University of Washington information. It's online at IHME.org. And they provide information on resource use and deaths. And what they're also doing now is offering what they call a containment date. And they mm -hmm. defined that date as one, one case per million people or less for over three days. It basically is almost no COVID-19 cases diagnosed in an area. So that's one piece of information you look at. 
The other information is, comes out of the New York Times. They have some excellent maps, and they have what I call heat bars. And those heat bars show you by state and by county where the county stands in terms of COVID-19 cases, doubling times. And they have maps that show if it's increasing, if the doubling time, if it's you know basically getting worse or getting better. Um, and it's been really interesting. We, we had a conversation, or I had a conversation with a television station in Nebraska a couple of weeks ago. And I was talking about, well, COVID-19 is not a problem in your community. Last night, they were one of the top counties in the country in terms of the increase of rate of COVID-19. So just because it's not there in your community doesn't mean, unfortunately, that's not coming. And certainly in Georgia, my look at the data in Georgia suggests that a lot of counties, particularly rural counties, there's an increase of COVID-19 cases. I think we need to be aware of that. So, so if we get to that one in a million in three days, we get to those really low levels. That's probably, I'm assuming, not the end of the issue. People are talking about second waves. So uh, we've been talking about this. How important are things like testing and things like that? Can that can those are, are those going to have to be in place if we're going to go out there? No question whatsoever in my mind and in the minds of many other experts who are better suited to this and more knowledgeable than I am. We have to have the reason you get to such a low case number is because you basically need to go immediately after a, a patient who's diagnosed with COVID-19. You have to trace their contacts and you have to make sure that people get treated or quarantined if necessary. Test, trace, and treat. Uh, CNN and particularly Sanjay Gupta has said that often enough. That, and I, I actually think it's a good way of thinking about this. So in order to get there, you have to have, number one, the resources in place. You have to have testing available, get prompt re reports. You have to have tracing available. You need a, an army of people to do that. And you need to be able to, to treat or quarantine people who are infected. To do that, you need really low case rates. And most places that I know of, that I look at, the case rates aren't anywhere near low enough yet to put that in place. And until we get there, we still have a risk. Forget the second wave in, in the fall. I'm concerned if we don't do this the right way, we'll have a second wave in several weeks or perhaps a month. Uh, so we're we're basically, you know, pushing the envelope quite a bit with some of the the thoughts and uh, people want to get out. I get it, but mm -hmm. is it the right mm -hmm. thing to do? I'm not so sure. And particularly for people who are immunocompromised, who have a history of cancer, uh, we we still have in our each of us has in our own hands, as it were, the ability to to make choices even if the community is opening up around us. Right? And people are making those choices. I mean, for, let's, you know, can, and cancer patients are going to have to make those choices for themselves and with their care teams when it's safe for them to go from here to there, come to the office or what have you, or start getting treatments and getting surgeries, which are probably going to, I think, are probably going to open up in the not-too-distant future in some communities. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it, it leaves people in, in, in a difficult spot. You, you need a clear understanding of what's happening, and these are complicated issues, complex. We talk about data. We live in the data-driven world. Not everyone understands that. Uh, and so it's it's really not a simple thing to, to, to explain and certainly not a simple thing to do when somebody says stay in your house. Businesses in, in where I live, businesses are making the choice not to open up. There are hair salons who say, I'm not opening up. I can't provide distance. I can't be safe for my clients. And I suspect we're going to see some... Not everybody's going to jump on the wagon uh, right away. It's going to take time. Right. So even if your community and your state starts opening up, each person does have to make make their own decision. 
still remains very much an individual choice. You just don't have to go out if you're uncomfortable going out. Another issue that came up uh, over especially the past three weeks or so was the racial disparities we're seeing in the COVID-19 epidemic. Uh, not a lot of media reports have dug much deeper than just simply saying being a person of color puts you at mm -hmm. a higher risk. Uh, is there an opportunity for us here to think more deeply about what that fact means? Well, I suspect that uh, the, to be sort of direct here, I don't think you have to think too deeply. Mm -hmm. These are issues and problems that have been around for a long time. They're part of our, unfortunately, of our institutional structure and the way we approach certain problems. These are not new. There are, there are a lot of us out there who understood talking about data, for example. We know what the data shows. There was no difference, for example, in outcomes for uh, colon cancer or breast cancer back in the 1970s because we didn't have much we could offer. Look at what happened over that period of time. The, the, the mortality rates, you know, the death rates dropped considerably more for whites than they did for blacks. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about that for years. We've talked about the impact of insurance on outcomes. The American Cancer Society did a substantial amount of research back in the early 2000 period of time looking at the disparities that occurred. And it's not all about race. It's about socioeconomics. It's about education. It's a lot of factors. So we have known about the problems. We have known that they exist. We just haven't paid as much attention to them. Now, once again, it seems like it's front and center. So let's understand something. It's not new. It's not different. It, it, it's the impact of all sorts of things that have happened over a long time. And this is one more example. Let's also remember that people of color, communities of color, they're the ones who have to go out and do a lot of the work. They're the ones who have to clean the buildings. They have to get on public transportation. They have to go to the hospitals and do a lot of the, the basic work in hospitals. They're more exposed than others. So there are a lot of factors. We should not ignore them. If we use this as an opportunity to, to truly address some of those issues, the fundamental structural issues, then good for us. Mm -hmm. it, it's a, it is a time of reckoning for the entire country. It really is exposing things we've known about. I know you say it's not new, but people are, are still very much reluctant to really embrace. They're very difficult, deep-seated problems. And this is not a surprise to a person of color that people of color are affected more deeply by this. And I certainly agree with that. The difference right now is it seems to have grabbed the headlines on the media. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do about it? And how are we going to make sure that everyone, everyone has the opportunity to get the care they need, particularly in a moment like this? Len, every year you and I look forward to going to a couple of really big medical meetings. I mean, there are several. Um, those are all on hold. And I was thinking today, it's interesting because for me, one of the most interesting parts of these meetings is talking to people in the hallways, sharing ideas. Um, AACR, American Association for Cancer Research, and ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, both committed to doing online virtual meetings. It's terrific, but we're going to be missing out on something, aren't we? We're going to be missing out on a lot because it's one thing to go to the meeting and listen to somebody give a presentation, which is critically important. And I understand those the organizations you mentioned, and I'm sure others are going to try to get that information out into the public domain, perhaps by a different mechanism than they did before at the at their annual meetings. Interestingly enough, I did an interview today with a leading Japanese newspaper, 
And one of the final questions that I was asked is, what can we as nations, I mean, he was interested in Japan and the United States, what can we do together to collaborate to move forward? Mm. And that's when it struck me that when you go to these meetings, there's such an international representation. There's mm -hmm. international discussion. It's the discussions that occur not only at, in the presentations, but outside the presentations. It's the hallway discussions. It's the meetings of people who researchers come together to collaborate and talk about things. That's gone. Mm -hmm. It's not going to happen. It's sort of a natural, natural thing that goes on as you get together with people. We aren't going to do that this year. Mm -hmm. So it also raises the question about how do we how we advance knowledge of science. Not, and advancing knowledge of science doesn't only come from here in the United States. It comes in Europe. It comes from Japan. It comes from many other countries. And it comes from a collective wisdom that comes together. And we're going to miss that opportunity in 2020. And I, I hope we can get back to it in 2021, but it's not going to be the same. And we should note that AACR and ASCO are, are making heroic efforts to put on these virtual meetings, and they are critical. Um, and so maybe it's up to the rest of us to figure out how to fill in the blanks, fill in the collaboration. Maybe we need research Zoom meetings. Well, we are, we're, we're having those kinds of meetings, and we have organizations here in the United States. You know, we've, we've been so focused, so focused on what's right in front of us in our own communities. We're beginning to see medical organizations come together to put some guidelines out there about what we do about treatment in the year of COVID-19. And maybe as we sort of move further on, as we get past this initial event that we're experiencing before we get to the next event, which I think is going to come, mm -hmm. maybe that's the time we have to have an international collaboration because there are other countries have good ideas about how to deal with COVID-19. Other countries have good ideas about how to deal with cancer care. Mm -hmm. What's their experience been? Because we don't hear a lot about that. We're, we're so focused on those top line things. You know, uh, how many cases in, in Atlanta, Georgia, how many deaths in Atlanta or Georgia or New York or wherever it may be. Mm -hmm. We're not thinking about all the innovative ideas that are coming out from other countries dealing with cancer care and cancer patients. So we need to we need to give consideration to that possibility. And, and it's very um, quite possible that this epidemic has made us really look at those collaborative opportunities now that they're lacking from the from medical meetings and others and, and really need to find a way to inform. Len, thank you again for your time. We'll talk again real soon. Take care of yourself. And you too. Thank you. Remember, you can get information about cancer, about COVID-19 and cancer, 24 hours a day, seven days a week at 1-800-227-2345 or visit our website, www.cancer.org. I'm David Sampson. Thank you for joining us.